Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So obviously very, very excited about the guest that we have today. Uh, it's a guest that has been at it for quite a bit as an entrepreneur, and I think that we're gonna be learning a lot, you know, on his journey on the ups, the downs, because we know that building a company is not a straight line. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Martin Movasate. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alejandro. So originally from the Bay Area, but obviously, you know, your parents, I'm sure, you know, had a great influence in you. They they immigrated from Iran. So I'm sure that starting over and, and building everything from scratch was an amazing source of inspiration for you. It was indeed. I definitely feel very spoiled. They had to go through quite a bit to make a transition to a new country, uh, to a new culture. And I was the beneficiary of that. So I guess, what what did you get? I mean, do you think that that maybe uh, inspired that entrepreneurial bug from you, like to see them, you know, working hard in in really developing a life, uh, you know, for, for all of you? And, and then especially being in the Bay Area, which is kind of like this incredible ecosystem of, of innovation. No? It definitely is. Yeah, it's hard to not get the bug if you're in the Bay Area. My my mom and dad actually are entrepreneurs themselves. They have a construction company, they build houses. And so that that's one way in which they influenced me. And then a second way is actually, I first got into software by doing a bunch of work for my dad. So my dad enlisted me to do a, a bunch of menial tasks for him, like moving files around on his computer and organizing it. And I was really lazy and didn't want to do that work and wanted to get back to playing video games. So I learned software to try to automate a lot of that work for me. And so in more ways than one, they've definitely influenced my entry into this area. So software, so obviously, you know, resolving problems. So, I mean, when it comes down to, for example, problem solving, right? So what, what, what would you say that got you into software? I mean, what was that bug? Because obviously that, that problem solving, I mean, you're applying it today as an entrepreneur. So, so what, what, really hooked you on 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 software on engineering on on solving problems i would say uh it's two things one is laziness <laughs> as okay. i previously mentioned it's when you write software once you can have it run infinity times on your behalf and that's a pretty cool and unique thing uh second thing i would say is 
There's some, there's something really gratifying. Do you, do you code Alejandro? No. Have you written software? Unfortunately not. What's interesting and unique about it is there there's a really tight feedback loop. And I would say there are very few things as an entrepreneur that have a tight feedback loop, which is to say you make a change and you see the results of that change immediately. In software, you can do that, which is really, really cool, allows you to improve rapidly, and is just itself super gratifying. So I think those things got me interested early on. Got it. And then after this, you definitely did the route of going to Stanford, doing your degree there. I mean, you did computer science, computer science and economics. I mean, that's quite an interesting combination. I, it's, it's interesting. Actually, I, I, I always enjoyed computer science. And it was funny. What made me want to explore economics, I think, was I took the computer science AP in high school and didn't do as well as I wanted to. And back then, I was, I, was, I was a dumb high schooler, so I could only think in terms of grades as the primary proxy for what I should pursue and what my passions are. And, and so that made me flirt with economics for a bit. And then due to all of those factors I mentioned previously about just how gratifying it is to write software and learn about software and the change of pace within that field, I found myself back into computer science. And then of course, I don't know if you noticed in my background, I had to, I had to make sure to enter a master's program so I could drop out as the ultimate badge of honor in Silicon Valley. And, and so that to me is the most more, most important part of my educational background. But talking about that education, I mean, it's interesting how you actually really uh, were part of some of the biggest corporations in the Bay Area too, before you actually went at it as an entrepreneur yourself, because I'm sure that that during that time you really learned, you know, like what works and some of those rocket ships. I mean, you were in Mozilla, you were also at Google, uh, you were also at Facebook, but probably, you know, like uh, I'm sure that you you identify patterns during the time of of working at these different corporations that you know that one day you would apply, you know, for something for something of your own. So, what were some of the things that maybe you learned from working, let's say, at Google? And then also from working at Facebook, two of the biggest companies. That's I. I the things I learned might not be what you think. So I'll, I'll caveat a little bit. Uh, most of those experiences you're mentioning were internships. So I wasn't at any of these companies for very long. So I, I don't want to pretend I really understand their inner workings. But um, I'll tell you something I had to unlearn, even though that's not what you asked me, Alejandro. Right. Uh, what it places like Google and Facebook. I think a lot of the teams take for granted the massive stage that they already can take advantage of. The brand name that they have that makes it easier to recruit, the existing infrastructure they have that makes it easy to scale, the existing user base they have that makes it easy to get distribution. And I think what that can create if you're not paying enough attention is laziness around finding product market fit. You can just get away with not being quite as good at it at one of those companies. You can you can force it in a way that you can't if you're starting from something from scratch where nobody knows who you are, nobody cares about what you're doing, and you have you have to build value from nothing. And so I, I definitely the the pattern of product creation at those companies, I think, took took a page from the stereotypical Steve Jobs model of, you know, I, I have a vision for how the world should work and I want to force that upon people. And I think that can be a very dangerous mindset to have as a startup founder because you you need to be extremely good at listening to the market you need to be extremely good at humility and you don't have many chances for failure 
So I had, to, I had to unlearn a lot of those things and be super humble, super honest with myself and grounded in a way I didn't really need to be at those companies. So then you were talking about product market fit and product market fit is obviously the holy grail for startups, right? So so what what have you learned? And and we're going to be talking about HIP, you know, which is your your baby, your own company, which was the, obviously Facebook was the segue for, for HIP, but but what did what did you really learn, uh, you know, during this time around product market fit? I mean, why is product market fit so important, and what does it look like? Yeah, it's. I think there's been tons of literature talks out there around how to find product market fit initially. So you'll hear you'll hear founders talk about it in terms of product market fit is the market pulling for your product, people signing up that you never talked to people using your product in ways you didn't anticipate uh, versus pushing a boulder up a hill is the kind of rule of thumb. If you, if you find yourself pushing through headwinds, you haven't found product market fit yet, so you should keep going. So I think, I think there's a lot there. I think what's more interesting to me is the once you find some semblance of product market fit, uh, which we were lucky to do in the first couple of years at Heap, that is not the same as you are ready to start scaling your company. And that, that became really clear to me uh, early on at Heap, where we had product market fit in the sense that we had happy customers, retained customers, using us in all, the, all of these different ways we didn't imagine. But product market fit is not a binary thing. And it's not even a, sing, it's not a, even a single product in a single market fitting together. You might have multiple markets and multiple use cases that you're serving. And you cannot scale unless you have been really crisp with yourself and your team about the exact parameters of those of that product market fit. So I think of that as like the first step is you get product market fit. The second step is you be really clear about what that product market fit is to yourself and your team. And then at that point, you can start scaling to the next step of growth for your company. And I don't think enough people talk about that. Yeah, no, 100%. So I guess in your, in your case, you know, after the time at Facebook, you know, it was time to, to really go at it on your own. I mean, what was that process like? Because really after, you know, being for a little bit there at Facebook in 2012, you started probably to incubate the idea, to think, you know, like what's going to be next. And that essentially, you know, ended up being hip. So so what was the incubation pro a process like? How did you come up with the idea? How did you think about, you know, perhaps that team that you would recruit for it? And, 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 and how was that journey like? The... Experience that I had at Facebook that it informed our initial thesis at Heap was I, I experienced just how difficult it was to use analytics in practice. So, so as context, Heap is a product analytics platform that makes it easy to understand how your customers use your product so that you can build better products. And one of the reasons I was excited about working at a place like Facebook was because it had this treasure trove of data, really sophisticated analytics infrastructure, and all these fancy data scientists. So it felt like a place where you could be a lot more intentional and grounded in the types of products you were building and whether they work. So that, that, that ideal and that vision was very exciting to me. What I found in practice, though, is that analytics is really, really difficult to use, like a big pain in the ass. If you have very simple questions about your product, questions like, how many of our users use this feature? What are the common flows they take after using this feature? Th those types of things re required literally months of time and me needing to loop in three different people, an engineer to set up the instrumentation, 
at data analysts to make sense of the data once it's eventually collected in a, a single place. And if, if it takes three months to go from question to answer, guess what? You're not going to use data to answer questions as much anymore. And so the, the realization that we had with, uh, with that experience was, well, holy shit, if it's this difficult to make good use of data at a place like Facebook, then what hope does the rest of the world have? To, make, to use data effectively and to achieve this glorious data-informed future that everybody hypes up. And so we decided to rethink analytics from the ground up pretty fundamentally when building Heap. And so it's, in, in some ways, I'm thankful to have experienced that pain uh, to recognize, okay, wow, th if this is the state of the art, maybe there's, maybe there's a different way we can tackle this. So then what were, what were those early days like? I mean, those early days like when all of a sudden you're giving your notice in one of the biggest companies to work for, and uh, you go, I'm sure that the conversation with your parents too was quite interesting, <laughs> no? Oh, yes, so. it was. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, that's actually a really good point. This was, I left actually a month or so before the IPO, and I didn't, I didn't wait for my one-year clip. I, I left within nine months, and I didn't consult my parents on that decision because I knew if I consulted them, they'd try to talk me out of doing it. And to stay a few more months in a role that I just fundamentally wasn't excited about. So so I didn't I didn't I did not consult them. I decided to leave and then when I did I left them that way and I left Facebook and there they were confused. But at the end of the day my parents had put a lot of trust in me uh, to make the right decisions. And so they, they didn't they were confused. Uh, they were surprised. Uh, but they, they ultimately weren't doubtful. In terms of the early days of Heap, it's interesting, Alejandro, do you know the notion of memory time? The idea of like you think when you recollect on things, it's the number of memories that you have that dictates how long it feels in your head. And it's interesting. It's the most of my memories of Heap are very backweighted in the sense that the the bigger I, I have more memories from hiring people, growing the company when we were 50 people, 100 people, 200 people, than when it was just me and my co-founder in my parents' basement in really cliche stereo, uh, Silicon Valley fashion. Uh, and so there weren't a lot of memories but that's from the early days, but that's because we were just cruising. We were in flow for those first couple of years because it was it, we had such crystal clarity on what we needed to do, which was to get those initial customers and make sure that they were happy and that we were solving their problems. And Boy, in, in retrospect, I really, I, I, it's so hard as a company scales to have that type of clarity of focus and that type of alignment. And it was a lot of just me and my co-founder sitting in the basement, emailing customers, calling up customers, writing code. It was, it was, it felt so smooth and so swift in a way that so, so few other parts of the company did. So I don't, I, I don't have many distinct memories from the early days, but I think that's because it was. It was so straightforward and so fast-paced in a way that later stages of the company just fundamentally cannot be. Got it. So then what ended up being the business model of HIP so that the people listening and also watching, you know, can really understand what it, what it is. How do you guys make money? How do we make money? It's, we, uh, it's pretty traditional SaaS uh, sales-driven revenue model. And so we have a few different pricing tiers. We have a free tier that thousands of people use today. And they can use for free forever. And that's typically well-suited for small teams, startups, uh, individual projects, individual developers. And then once you start getting to a certain scale in terms of team size and traffic, then we'll work with you to figure out a package 
and a contract that makes sense for you. And, and that's the bulk of how we make revenue is you, you work with our sales team to figure out uh, something that works for you and something that works for us. So in this case, for you guys, I know that it was very technical and really getting it right on the technical side, you know, it was a, quite a beast. In fact, you know, you even received calls at 2 a.m. with stuff that was breaking down with the users' accounts, you know, and data, you know, being deleted and things like that. So, so how do you deal with, with all of that stuff? I'm sure it was not, not easy stuff. Yeah, her, her, yeah, harrowing memories are flooding back to me. So, so you mentioned 2 a.m. It's funny. It wasn't 2 a.m. It was actually 5 a.m. Because I, I would routinely <laughs> be awake at 2 a.m. writing code. That would have, that actually would be less of an issue. Um, the so, so just as context, uh, Heap's approach to analytics is quite unique in that rather than requiring you to have to manually specify upfront which events you want to track within your application, Heap will automatically collect all of that user behavior out of the box. So if you were to add Heap to dealmakers.com or to an application, we'll just automatically collect all of the user interactions like clicks, page views, vacuum all of that up, and then make it easy for you to make sense of that after the fact. So you can imagine all of the ways in which that is a, a pathologically difficult infrastructure problem. We're dealing with an order of magnitude more data volume than other solutions. Uh, we're still allowing you to do real-time analysis on that. And the types of queries and analyses that we let our customers do are sophisticated analyses. It's not just simple counts. It's things like, give me the users who have gone through this step in my signup flow, but haven't completed the second step and have signed up within the past 30 days. And so that stuff gets really tricky really fast. And so basically the, the first big hurdle for the company was making the damn thing work at any reasonable scale. We had gotten some initial traction from other startups, other other members of the YC batch we were in. But we knew that to really make money, we had to work with companies that had some scale. And making Heap work initially at that scale was highly non-trivial. In fact, I remember early on, there was a, I was trying to get advice on how to approach this problem from somebody who had worked on the Google Analytics team. And that person told us, you can't do this. This is unsolvable. This won't work. Give up now. And doubly so because my co-founder and I, we didn't, we weren't analytics whizzes. We hadn't built that type of scale infrastructure before. So in many ways, we were trying to figure this stuff out on on the fly. And so the early days, as you can imagine, was a lot of infrastructure snafus, shit breaking. And it, I remember I was I, I had a, a rare respite one Friday afternoon. I, I was we were working in, in in Menlo Park at the time, and I was taking the the evening off and hanging out with some of my friends in San Francisco. And I was, I was watching a movie. And I, know, I was in the middle of a movie, and I noticed my co-founder was calling me on my phone. And, and, I, and I, 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 I screened it. I, I, I dismissed the call because, obviously, I don't want to take a call in the middle of the movie. And I noticed he kept calling me like three, four, five times. And at some point, I was like, okay, uh, something's wrong. And then so I, I duck out of the theater, and then... He, he says in a really great voice, he's like, yeah, there, I don't see any data in our database anymore. It's all gone. <laughs> and obviously I freak out and I, I, I get in the car and I, I race back, driving back to the Bay Area. And it was funny because on the way back, I was thinking through what the possible problem could have been. And I 
I, I, I was going through all of the different parts of our code base, how we built things. How could this have possibly happened? And it was on the drive back as I was fuming and stressing out in the car ride that I was able to debug the issue. And then uh, ultimately, when I came back in, uh, in, into our janky headquarters, I was, I was able to fix it. But that did that fix it going forward, I should say. I wasn't able to reclaim the lost data. And what's even more funny, actually, this, this is uh, we had just made our first hire the week prior. And that first hire was taking the weekend off to go hiking so that he didn't, he's now our CTO, but he didn't have any internet access at all. And so he came back Monday morning with the news that we had accidentally lost data for a bunch of our early beta customers. It was like 10, 15 people. And <laughs> this is uh, a cold, a cold, hard reality for him. Day, week two of his job at a startup coming from Palantir. And I could tell he wasn't quite sure what he was getting himself into working with us at the startup. Wow. I mean, what a, what a story. And obviously, you know, it's been quite a journey. How, mu how much capital have you guys raised today? We've raised $95 million today. And, and obviously, I mean, that's quite an amount. And it has been done in different tranches. So I understand as well that it has gotten a little bit easier no, than the, the early days, perhaps. So, so how is that progression over time when it comes to, to raising capital, Martin? I mean, what's the, what does it look like? I mean, does it get easy when you go from, from early stage to growth stage? I, I wouldn't say it gets easier. It, it's different. Uh, so we, we raised our seed round in $2 million in 2013, and then we ra most recently raised our $55 million Series C uh, mid-2019, uh, so about a year and a half ago. And what I've learned since then is fundraising is a skill. So I like to joke. I, I like to make myself feel better by saying that I'm pretty sure I'm a better fundraiser than Mark Zuckerberg because he's <laughs> built a, a far more successful company than I have. And when you have, you don't need to be good at, quote, fundraising. Uh, VCs will come to you. They'll throw money at you. And so I, I didn't quite have that luxury. So I had to learn what good fundraising looks like in practice. And, and th there are a few tips and tricks. And the, I, the most important thing that sometimes founders forget is that the easiest way to be good at fundraising is to have a good business. I think yeah. we forget this sometimes. Have something that customers really want and make sure that the business is doing well. And there are some pretty tried and true metrics that everybody looks at now. Those metrics aren't going well. You should focus on that before you try to raise money. So that, that's like rule number zero. Another thing that really helps, and I wish this weren't true, but in nothing gets an investor more excited than another investor being in the deal. And so to whatever extent you can get that first check, that first commitment, that that is the thing that unlocks deal flow and excitement from everybody else to make your round come together. So if you can get that first yes, you will get 10 more yeses. And I wish the world didn't work that way. I wish you could conduct fundraising in a way where every investor were in a room and they had to make their own independent decision. Um, so the downside there is that it makes that first yes harder. Uh, but once you get that first yes, the subsequent ones are are really easy. Yeah. And and another thing I've learned, it's fundraising is just very different. To your point, does it get easier? Not necessarily. Uh, when we raised our seed round, we raised our seed round with absolutely no product no revenue, no customers. And so we're pitching investors on a vision. And in many ways, it is easier to raise money on a vision. Visions are always great. You think about the upside. and then, But once you start getting a product out there, getting real customers, 
then the narrative and the fundraise starts becoming about the numbers. And the numbers are never going to look as good or as compelling as your vision does. So and, and the, the seed round in many ways was easy. You're just pitching a vision. And I, and I felt like we had a very compelling, ambitious vision behind Heat. And then as you start getting more mature, I was, I was actually quite surprised at how different the Series A fundraising process was. Uh, when I set out to do that, I was not prepared. I, I thought that investors would value vision and the founders. But at that point, we had traction. We had growth. And I didn't do enough to both focus the pitch on that. And if I'm being honest with myself, really as a C- CEO, orient my running of the business on those metrics that are that are so critical for you to go from Series A to Series B to Series C. I could go on for hours on this, Alejandro. There, there are lots of learning for fundraising. But if there's one thing that makes it easy is build a good business. A hundred percent. You know, and I like what you what you were alluding to. I mean, you have amazing investors. I mean, you have NEA, you have Menlo Ventures too. Uh, so, so you were alluding to it like in terms of signaling. So when you have like, you were alluding to it like getting that first check. But I'm sure that also is getting the first check from someone that they know. Because typically when you have the round open, you know, they're like, who else is investing? So how do you typically, how, how would you suggest that for the people that are listening and, and watching, how should they approach this signaling part to the market about the round? I don't think they should think about it that much. I, I don't actually think it's that important. The, I think the most important thing is getting a, a check, getting the money so your company can get to the next <laughs> stage. Right. Like you have to not die. Yeah. You're not dying. You're you're doing better than 95% of companies out there. And then the second thing is the um, getting a partner that you really appreciate, that you trust, and that you feel can add to your to your company. And I think that I've definitely been guilty of this is overweighting the firm name as opposed to the specific partner that you're working with. And that that partner will not only be the person in your board meeting, not only the person that you're interfacing with. But the person who is your advocate internally at that firm who dictates whether you have follow on money, that dictates your internal presence at that company, how excited that firm is and all those other partners are about you. So waiting the partner. And then if you get those things right, I think the signaling is a really distant factor. And if you have those things, you have a partner who's willing to go to bat for you. That Those are the things that make a round come together and ultimately make uh, your company get to the next step of growth. Got it. And how many employees do you guys have today at HIP? We have 200 employees distributed around the world. We're looking to get to 300 employees by the end of this year. Very cool. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, for you as well, building the uh, leadership team, you know, was also full of lessons learned and, and I'm sure it was a new thing for you. So so what, what were some of those, you know, things that, that were like wow factors for you to really get and and things that maybe, you know, you can share with the audience, you know, that are going to have to eventually, you know, also grow in parallel with their business and really think about how they're placing the right people on the right seats of the bus. That's, uh, that's a really good question. If, if I look back on our growth, since it was just me and my co-founder uh, in a basement, I, th- I think the single biggest mistake I made and the thing that I would approach differently is how I built the leadership team. I underweighted a few things. One, the degree to which that was my job as a CEO now is to assemble and align an exceptional leadership team. Once you get to some scale, 
maybe it's 20, 30, 40 people, it's no longer the founders who are the core decision-making unit of the company. It is the leadership team. So I underestimated the, the degree to which that shift needed to happen and how quickly. And I, as with many product-focused founders, I spent too much time in the weeds, spent too, too long in the product rather than figuring out how to scale out decision-making within the company. So I underestimated th that degree of change, how quickly that change needed to happen. And I didn't fully internalize what it means to build a leadership team and what it means to be a good executive. Initially, I, what, when I thought about a good executive, when I thought about a good leader, I thought about someone that I and my co-founder could work well with. And that's an important ingredient for that executive to succeed at your company, but it is far from the only requirement for them to be successful. I, I think uh, a leadership team is, is really about building a team. Like you're not just assembling a bunch of Power Rangers, you're trying to build a Megazord. And, and so you have to think about the, the, the strengths and weaknesses and how different members of those leadership team complement each other, rather than just getting a bunch of great individuals. And there's a difference between somebody who does good work and somebody who enables their team and the rest of the organization to do good work. And it's since hiring and being around some really amazing executives at Heap that I've come to see just how much of a step function difference that difference change that makes for the company when you hire a leader who is a multiplier rather than someone who just does great work themselves. Because if you're hiring a, a leader who does great work themselves, you're not actually leveraging your company. That that isn't the thing that takes you to that next level. So I, I that's one of those things I did not enter in short. I should have obsessed about building a best leadership team way earlier and internalized that as my job number one as a CEO earlier in the life cycle of the company. And when you're recruiting, I mean, those um, members of the leadership team, I mean, it's a, they're critical roles. I mean, especially at the beginning, they can make it or break it for the business. So during that recruiting, do, do, during that dating phase, because I think it's like a mutual thing, you know, you need to convince them, they need to be convinced as well that it's the right thing for them. I mean, what are some of the, uh, like, if you had to, like, pick, like, two questions, what are, like, the two biggest questions that you would typically ask them that you really want to pay close attention to what kind of answer they give you to really understand if, if they're going to work or not? I, I think there are, there are two questions I go to, but I'll preface this with a lot of how I learn about an executive is through deep dive and random access to their brain, as opposed to, like, one question and one answer. You learn a lot from a leader by digging in, kind of asking follow-up questions, asking for more specificity, asking for counterfactuals. And that gives you a sense of really how they think, because I, I think executives are especially good at bullshitting you. And yeah. so you have to be good in, in the Q&A to really follow up, really dig deep and get specificity when they say, I've done X, or I achieved Y, or I've overcome this hurdle. So with that caveat in mind, I'll rather than a question, I think of it as, as trains of of discussion. And one area that I really try to discuss with them is their learning as a leader. What were mistakes they made? What could they have done better? And if they were to do it all again, what would they do differently? And that, that reveals so much about a leader. It, it reveals the degree of growth mindset they have. It reveals the degree of ego that they have. How self-aware are they about what they've done well and what, they, what they've done poorly? And a lot of what you, you don't want an executive who just 
does stuff for you, it builds a team. You want an executive who can grow with the company. So I find that that line of questioning really helps me understand the degree of growth mindset that they have. And then the second line of questioning is around how they hired. How many people have they hired? How did they evolve their hiring processes as their team scaled? What is their notion of what a good hire looks like? Tell me about times you have closed a great candidate or fails, failed to close a great candidate. Uh, tell me about people you've hired that you think could take your role. And you're, what you're looking for there is somebody who can recruit well and can recruit people better than themselves. Uh, at the end of the day, that if an executive cannot recruit, cannot hire exceptional talent, they're not going to succeed, no matter how great they might be at managing a team or working with everybody else. They need to recruit exceptional people. Very cool. So, I mean, obviously now at this point, over 200 employees, close to 100 million in, in capital raised. Uh, I mean, you've been at it now for a while. I mean, we're talking since 2013, like really behind the trenches, you know, in on the fight, on the daily fight. Uh, and um, I think that, you know, if, 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 if you had the opportunity, let's say you go to sleep tonight and tremendous news, you wake up five years later and you wake up in a world where the mission of HIP is fully realized. What does that world look like? I don't know if we'll realize that mission in five years, but the the vision for Heap is to turn product management into more of a science. And today, the notion of building a great product is very much an art. And what that means it is building great products is relocated to just a few people. It depends way too much on a stroke of blind luck or catching lightning in the bottle. And if we can make the process of building great products something that's more systematic, more accessible to more people, that's a really cool thing. That that's that that would that would be a really powerful thing for the world. And so I don't I don't know if we can achieve that in five years. I think we have a ways to go. But if we can enter this world where building great products is more of a system, is more boring and less capricious than it is today, I think that is a very good thing. And that would that would be a signal that we have realized a chunk of our mission and vision here at Heap. Very cool. So so one of the questions that I ask the guests that come on the show is, if I was to put you in a time machine, Martin, I put you in a time machine and we're going back to that moment where you were still in Facebook, uh, and you were wondering, you know, about doing something in the world, maybe launching your own business, whatever that was. So if you were able to have that ear of that younger self, and obviously our younger selves, you know, when we're younger, we never listen. But let's say at that point, Matin was listening. And you were able to tell that younger Matin one, one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why based on what you know now? Be better at listening to customers. What I mean by that is, I, I think it's kind of a truism at this point. You need to talk to your users. You need to listen to customers. But just talking to your customers is not the same as listening to them. And I think it, at the end of the day, I think the degree to which you're good at truly understanding your customers, the degree to which you understand your product market fit, and the degree to which you will succeed as a business and grow. And, and I think there are many instances in which I had happy years as a founder where a customer saying, hey, the thing you're building sounds cool. And I would, in my head, interpret that as awesome. They're going to buy it. They're going to pay a bunch of money for it. This thing is going to go gangbusters. But somebody saying something as interesting is not the same thing as them paying for it or advocating 
support, right. pushing it internally. And so I've, since then, I, I've learned ways in which to actually be truth oriented in terms of really understanding, is there demand? Is there pull for what we're building? And I would have sat down with my younger self and been like, hey, here's how to not delude yourself to hear what you want to hear from your customers. Wow. Very, very profound. So, so Martin, for the people that are listening, for the people that are watching, what is the best way for them to get in touch and say hi? We're hiring a lot of people. So if the, we have every role is open at Heap. So if you go to our website, heap.io, we're, we're hiring. We'd love to talk to you. Uh, we're always looking for, for ambitious, low ego, intellectually curious people. If you are building a product, and you want to understand how it's being used so that you can make it better, use Heap. And, and if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter, and you can find Heap on Twitter at, at Heap. Amazing. Well, Martin, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you for having me, Alejandro. I enjoyed this. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.